Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Ah, thank goodness, Mark. The technician put the right intro in instead of the outro uh, for the intro and the outro for the outro last week. So welcome, everybody, to the Vet Podcast. It is the week ending April the 6th, 2018, post-Easter podcast, Mark. So I think you've got a couple of stories you might want to talk about regarding Easter. Well, Easter's been a, a, a real family, um, uh, a real family event uh, for us. You know, uh, as historically, as vets, we um, tend to spend our public holidays holed up in our workplace, dealing with a variety of emergencies. But I've had um, my, my relatives from Melbourne come to visit, and uh, particularly my lovely niece. And um, and I haven't bored her. She's actually been uh, quite enjoying doing a little bit of um, bird watching, which has been. Um, pretty uh, well gratifying. So I've enjoyed the last couple of days, um, despite having to go in occasionally. We'll talk about the cases we've had to uh, um, attend the hospital for maybe a bit later on. Yes. Well, I um, my pre-Easter um, event was on the day that um, – actually, it was last Thursday, I think, before Easter Friday here in Australia um, – uh, where I had a dog come in right at the end of um, consultations just before six o'clock and a very good client and the owner said, oh, she's got into an Easter egg and this is a bit of a chubby little Jack Russell. Um, she's a great dog. She's on all sorts of meds for skin problems but, and um, the client phoned up and said, oh, she's got into an Easter egg and she got into or she ate the whole of a 200-gram dark chocolate Easter egg, Mark. So it was um, quite interesting. I jumped on to Vin, have a great chocolate calculator, chocolate calculator there, and the little slider went right to the very edge saying imminent death for this animal. So we quickly rushed it down, got it down to the clinic there and um, induced it to vomit. And it's amazing the volume of of chocolate that they um, that they can produce, Mark, when they, when they, when they vomit up. That, I think it's that mix of the gastric juices and the froth there, but um, it had three or four huge vomits there and uh, its heart rate was uh, up a fair bit but um, it survived and it's doing really well so that was a bit of a win there Mark I think you had one similar did you? We did indeed Uh, fortunately it was a milk chocolate uh, case which obviously um, they have a little bit less thriobromine and uh, and maybe the um the dogs can consume a little bit more before they reach the imminent death stage, but they still end up being, um, you know, not well. And uh, and it's one of the opportunities um, for us to. Uh, I'll uh, have one of the product reviews I'd like to do is the um, uh, the uh, iPhone ECG monitor, and um, and this is one of those situations where it's pretty cool to whack the device onto the the dog in the consult room and demonstrate. Uh, altered ECG trace to the client, um, and, uh, and yeah, fortunately our our dog um, showed only mild changes, and the people got it to us within about twenty five minutes of uh, the ingestion. Um, but um, but I've, I've been struck, Brendan, by how how many of these we've had. Over. Like it's not uh, a regular thing for us to 
you know, we might deal with one or two, but I'd say over the last 10 days we've had um, uh, probably six, I think, now. six. This will be the seventh one, the one that we did this morning. So In, I think people, Very interesting, yeah. despite, despite the fact that these days we see lots of community service mentions on the radio, on the TV, in the veterinary literature and um, trying to educate clients before Easter that, hey, um, chocolate is toxic to animals. And I would have thought that more and more people realise that it is toxic than used to and yet you especially have seen more more cases and I expect a lot of other vet clinics have seen more cases of it as well. So what's up with that, Mark? Why is that happening? I've got a theory. Branded, I have a theory. <laughs> um, my theory is that when I looked across these cases, um, none of them were cases where the people had given the dog the chocolate. They know it's toxic. They're all cases of um, accidental, you know, that the dog has gotten to a point where the people thought they couldn't get the chocolate, but the, uh, the dog's... Um, well, obviously, uh, um, outwitted the the feeble attempts of their owner to uh, hide the chocolate away. I think that there, there's three factors. I reckon um, people are less experienced with how smart their dogs and how how persistent their dogs can be, um, and they're less experienced at how. Uh, uh, how the dogs can smell the chocolate out and know where it is. Um, and uh, finally, I, I did a quick little bit of research and my understanding is that our the amount of chocolate that we're buying is increasing just at a fairly dramatic clip. An interesting statistic I discovered was that in the week before Easter, just a, sh- just a tiny bit under... 200 million Australian dollars was spent uh, specifically on chocolate Easter eggs, um, which just by way of comparison, in that one week, um, uh, a twelfth, one twelfth of the, uh, the amount that people spend on their pets at the vet over a year was uh, um, was spent on chocolate. Um, so I think there's more chocolate People, many people in, are new to having a dog, and so they're unfamiliar with how keen their little uh, Shih Tzu will be to um, to get to the chocolate, um, and uh, and they are unfamiliar with how good that dog schnoozer snifferator. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, well, Mark, I, I, I must admit that I'm contributing to that problem there, Mark, because on. Easter Sunday, I got up and I thought, yeah, I've got to get fit again and get on my bike. And as you know, I I, I used to ride a little bit and I haven't pulled out the bike for a very long time. So I went out into the carport, I pulled all the cobwebs off the bike, I pumped up the tyres and I came back inside and ate 200 grams of dark chocolate. So that was my Easter Sunday. (laughs) So I'm planning on today, I'm going to jump on the bike as soon as bike as soon as I've finished the podcast and get out there and cycle a little bit, Mark. And um, hopefully when I get back, I won't contribute to the problem and eat another 200 grams of chocolate because I felt pretty, pretty queasy after eating all that chocolate. I just couldn't stop myself. But anyway, yes, so um, good theory, Mark. Well, it sounds like it's not a theory. It's a fact um, from those statistics you've given us there. So we're going to jump into mail. 
and we haven't got any. <laughs> so we don't love it too. But, but I think we, we need to take this opportunity to um, to to uh, uh, berate to um, like you know this isn't really friendly podcast, Brendan. We we are pretty you know with each other and with our uh, our wonderful audience. But this is a time for us to just lay down the law a little bit. And we, we need, um, we've got some excellent stories so far, but for the competition for your wonderful book, I need to, um, uh, first of all, sing the praises of the prize, um, that, um, that excellent tome um, that, uh, that um, uh, you and our good friend, Dr. Robert, uh, prepared on um, reptile care. Um, I've seen so many of our um, uh, vet students f- flick through the pages and be enlightened to the introductory information in reptile husbandry and care. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful prize and we need more more stories, Brendan. We need our um, wonderful listeners to toss us a few more stories to read online. So that's my little bit of anger for today. You are getting angry. Um, it's usually me who's getting angry, Mark. But I think, um, yes, I agree totally. We need more. Well, we we feel a bit lonely too when we don't get too many emails and people saying hello and, and just dropping us a, an email to vetgurus at gmail.com and just saying hello. That's You don't need to send us a big um, story or enter the competition. You can just say hello and, and you enjoy the podcast or you don't enjoy the podcast. Um, just say hi because it's very lonely speaking into the microphone here at the um, at Brendan, um, at the um, recording studio here in the back room here and everybody's out out and about in my family here. We're recording slightly different time, aren't we, Mark? We're recording in a morning instead of an evening today. So um, listeners might notice we're a little bit... Um, a little bit different with our attitude today, and I don't know whether that's because we haven't um, fueled up enough on our coffee, and for you, fueled up on a bit of alcohol because it's not late in the day. Um, but yeah, we're going to jump into news, Mark. We're going to jump into news. I think um, so. The first news item I'm going to take, and it's a good, good feel good story, Mark. It's an excellent feel good story, and that is sea turtles are returning to Mumbai Beach. After a 20-year absence and two decades after they were last spotted on nesting on Vasova Beach in Mumbai in India, the olive Ridley turtles appear to be returning to the shoreline that was once drowning in plastic waste. And this whole whole, um, scene of cleaning up this beach was started with a dramatic turnaround in 2015 when a young lawyer and environmentalist witnessed a depressing sight from the window of his new Oceanside apartment. And he looked out his apartment two years ago that he'd just bought, purchased there, and he saw plastic on the beach. It was five and a half feet high. And it's amazing the pictures of this. There's even a video, and this is from the Mother Nature Network, as usual, this um, report. Uh, the video is incredible. It's got the before and after pictures of this beach, and it's just amazing that the litter that's that's just um, on this beach. Um, so he started up a, 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 um, a clean-up campaign there, and it blossomed into more than a 1,000 volunteers cleaning up the beach, and it ended up being the world's largest beach clean-up, Mark. And over a 21-month period, they cleaned up more than 11 million pounds of 
trash um, from the beach. And now the turtles have returned. So there we go, um, the hatchling turtles. And you can see those little cute hatchling turtles um, struggling their way back to the beach there after hatching to head off into into the um, bay there in Mumbai to um, eat some more plastic um, <laughs> as they head off into the into the wild. But I thought that was a really good um, feel-good story. And it was just amazing. Um, interestingly enough, enough, Mark, and you know um, this, I, I will be heading to India um, later this year in December and hello to all our Indian listeners there and um, I don't know whether I'll, I'll end up in Mumbai itself we'll be spending a bit of time in Delhi first and then um, heading around some of the tourist areas as well but I'll be there for probably two and a half weeks in in India so um, if I head to the Mumbai region I will get to that beach I'll make sure I'll get there Mark and I'll take some pics there and I'll post them in our on our website. So that's um, that sea turtles returning to a beach in in Mumbai in India. Um, you've got something a little bit um, a little bit darker there, Mark. Although it's a bit of a um, a bit of uh, an interesting one about rabies. Yes, it is, Brendan, and uh, it's it's a, a particularly interesting um, story for me because we've uh, got this occupational health and safety issue at work. We see we don't have rabies per se, in Australia, um, but we do have um, uh, Australian bat lysivirus, ABL, and uh, very closely related disease has, has, I understand, resulted in um, a couple of deaths through the years, in particularly in the Northern Territory. Um, and so rabies is uh, something that um, is like we we're unfamiliar with it, but it plays on our mind. Um, and uh, we're often unfamiliar with the clinical signs as well because we don't see it at all regularly. Um, and uh, but we are acutely aware of the the nervous system signs, the um, anxiety, the partial paralysis, the hallucinations, um, and the aggression, the uh, uh, severe aggression that often is a hallmark of the infection in dogs. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things about this is that despite uh, a really, really simple genetic makeup, um, that uh, rabies can manage to alter the behaviour of some uh, of animals, dogs, in such a way that increases the likelihood of the disease spreading, in fact, increasing the survival of the virus. Um, but the exact mechanism, the exact biochemical mechanism has always been very elusive. It's very difficult to study. You don't necessarily want to be infecting, you don't want to be playing with this virus. So, um, But it would appear that some recent research uh, looks to uh, um, show that uh, uh, the, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in the brain seem to be the the uh, uh, site of action and um, and uh, particular proteins uh, uh, glycoproteins that the virus produces um, uh, they bind to such receptors and uh, alter the action of them both in the muscle but most importantly in the um, central nervous system and uh, and so. Um, in test subjects, particularly in mice, where they've uh, received uh, injections of the glycoprotein that uh, the rabies virus produces, um, they've gotten these behaviour changes. So um, it's very interesting that um, about the, the, the precise mechanism. It reminds me of the whole toxoplasmosis story, Brendan, where uh, disease-causing organism 
affects the flow of neurotransmitter material to promote its survival over the survival of the host by, you know, making them more likely to bite, in the case of rabies, more likely to bite another dog and, um, and pass on infected saliva, which leads to promotion and promulgation of the virus across the population. There's some smart people out there, isn't there, Mark? Um, when you read some of these research articles, you think, gee... I'm dumb. Well, that's what I certainly um, think when I read these sort of articles there. But it's good that people, maybe I shouldn't be eating as much chocolate as I um, am at the moment. That might help with my nicotinic receptors um, firing off properly. Um, okay, so new story number three is about, uh, it's a, it's another feel-good story, Mark. I've, I've got feel-good inside me at the moment, and it's, again, it's probably all that um, chocolate that's floating around my system. A photographer captures a bittersweet spirit of a dog who has been living in a park for 13 years. And it's about a dog that was living in a Los Angeles area park for at least 13 years. And nobody knows how the dog got there. And I like this article because it has some really good um, pictures there because it's about a man who managed to take photographs of this dog and he produced a series of pictures and Funnily enough, he called it the dog in the park, Mark. Um, that's the sort of um, title I'd probably put in the podcast if we were talking about this dog. And it captures the spirit of this um, dog there. To me, the dog, I don't know whether you've seen this article, Mark, it looks a little bit like a dingo, this dog, um, the way um, the way it's um, um, looking at the camera there in one of the pictures there. And um, I did a little bit of work with dingoes. We were t- talking about dingoes offline a little bit before, but we won't talk about that particular story because that's for another day, Mark. Um, yeah, so at one stage the local rangers or equivalent tried to catch this dog, Mark, um, because they didn't like this stray dog in the park and nobody could catch it uh, because he would just look at the people and, and just gently um, trot off when people tried to catch them and uh, people have got used Used to dealing with this particular dog is isn't is, it doesn't seem to um, bother anybody and uh, this man uh, moved closer to the park and he goes to the park every morning and he knows the spot for him and people leave out food for this dog and he um, I think the dog got to know the man so he then managed to take a few pictures of him and um, if he managed to get too close to him he'd just nick off and um, but he's done an interesting series of um, pictures of this dog in the park Um, so what's the moral of the story I don't know Mark I think it's I need to get out more and take some more photos because I'm certainly not taking as many photos as I'd like to but um, I really I really like the um the 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 take-home message for me was the the um the need for just you know people around the edge or dogs around the edge, the quirkiness. Sometimes uh, uh, individual animals or people don't fit with the, the mainstream of things, and that's okay, Brendan. I like it. I like And the, the uh, photographer catching the spirit of that dog. Yeah, I, I, I think those, uh, you know, it's good to celebrate those uh, people or animals who um, choose a different path. I reckon. Absolutely, Mark. And speaking of different paths, the final news story is a Swedish Swedish billbird for birds. What's that about, oh, Mark? There's some I've got all different feelings about this, Brendan. You know you know how <laughs> uh, what 
complex um, emotions uh, feeding birds uh, raises in me. Um, but this is a, a another one of the Mother Nature Network stories um, celebrating um, the way uh, our Nordic colleagues, um, yeah, they, they sort of fit that bill from the, the last story. They're a bit offbeat. They're happy to, to uh, look at things from a different perspective and particularly in their advertising world. They have a bit of a reputation in uh, Sweden in particular for um, trying things that, um, you know, sometimes don't necessarily work but, um, but in most instances, uh, you know, look outside the square and revolutionise a bit of advertising. And in this instance, a billboard... Um, uh, that uh, uh, I think it's in, is it uh, Uppsala? Uh, I can't remember the place that it's yes. in, um, but uh, it, they, it's a giant billboard with a, a massive pair of hands outstretched like they're uh, going to receive communion. And then the billboard's arranged so that um, a little squirt of food comes out each time a bird lands on the outstretched hands. And so it's... Uh, it's uh, uh, you know, attracted the birds. The birds come in, land on the hands, and uh, and get a bit of a feed. And um, and obviously, uh, this unusual process of the use of a billboard has um, has uh, has generated some advertising information for um, what are the brand commu- communication concept for a company called Engineering for Life, and uh, they like to think that um, the open hands feeding the bird represents their, you know, their um, company's engineering, the, the way that they uh, build things um, that uh, encourages life. So, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I have all sorts of mixed feelings about it, but um, it's a, a spectacular way to um, get your advertising message across. Yes, and there is a video attached to that particular article that uh, shows the mechanism behind the billboard there with this automatic bird feeder that spits out some um, almost looks like seed doesn't it mark to 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 the birds that perch on the on the hands at the front there of the billboard yeah so um, yeah very quirky and it certainly got the attention of 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 the media and it got the attention of us as well but whether it's the right thing to do that's another story altogether isn't it mark that's our last news story i think considering um that we've had a couple of technical issues this um, this week, Mark, haven't we, with um, with dropout? So this will be a bit of a cut and paste episode again. Hopefully, um, our listeners won't notice where we have cut and paste our our edits. Um, typically, we normally just go straight through, but we had the line drop out a couple of times. So I think we should jump straight onto the main topic, Mark. We won't do a review this week. And the main topic, I think you're going to talk mainly today about the main topic, which is hatching. Um, what are we going to chat about as far as hatching, Mark? Are you back there, Brendan? I'm here. Yes, I'm here, Mark. Yep, go ahead. I missed completely that introduction, but I understand that um, uh, our, our topic today is going to be in celebration of uh, the time of year, the uh, Easter tradition. We're going to talk about eggs, um, and so uh, our um, there were a couple of 
you know, just general topics about eggs that I thought we might uh, um, cross over, but in particular incubation, uh, incubation of both our reptile eggs and um, and some bird eggs. And to start that process, I wanted to have a quick little talk about um, candling because um, candling is a, a – a thing that I often end up talking to um, clients about. Um, it's a really simple thing that uh, um, my bird clients and reptile clients, probably to a lesser degree, which we'll talk about later, um, can do to uh, assess the um, um, some aspects of the the uh, health of their eggs. And um, and candling, of course, is a simple process of holding a relatively bright light. Um, uh, beneath an egg um, so that the bright light shines through the egg, highlighting um, those structures within the egg um, and allowing you to make a little bit of an assessment of the the, um, uh, how things are within an egg. And so um, we use, there's several things that we sort of look for uh, within an egg that, um, that when we're doing this candling process, um, the first thing is that uh, we look for um, an embryo. Um, and um, usually uh, the embryo is uh, visible after um, a few days after the egg's been fertilised. And um, depending on the species, most of the information about candling comes from uh, the work in poultry, but often um, uh, my clients are doing it to much smaller eggs. And uh, and so identifying the embryo is good. It looks like a little dark comma-shaped um, uh, uh, structure within the egg, and usually there will be some movement of the embryo that you can uh, pick up. But if you're looking at the embryo, uh, the candling an egg for you know 30 seconds to a minute and the embryo doesn't uh, give any little flicks or tiny movements that's a, a, a probably an important thing to note and often that's an indication that the embryo is not particularly healthy and mark two questions one are there particular eggs or species uh, that are easier to candle than others and two what do you recommend for using for the can then what what light source is there is there a, a, a simple cheap light source that you recommend or, or anything both good questions brendan and the interesting thing i think is that um the uh, species that are easiest to candle are the ones who lay smaller eggs, and that's just purely a transmission of light. You can see more in the smaller eggs. But having said that, eggs up to the size of, um, you know, goose eggs, larger than chicken eggs, are still quite, uh, you know, you can see quite a lot through them, and the observations you can make are, are pretty uniform. So I don't have any particular preferences for species. Um, the tools I use, I actually use... Um, my um, uh, otoscope. Uh, I remove the the, uh, um, the the speculum from the otoscope, and using the speculum mount, a circular structure, I will often pad that and then rest the egg on it, and use the bright light from the uh, the otoscope to generate the, the suitable light. But honestly, Brendan, any bright light, you know, you walk into a service station these days and you can pick up lovely diet relatively cheap little diode lamps that um uh that uh, 
give it a huge amount of brightness and you can just rest the egg on the the uh, surface of those um, uh, those little torches and you'll get sufficient yes. light to see inside the egg. Well, I use the otoscope as well, although I must admit I don't do as much candling as I should, Mark. Um, so, yeah, my next question would be what do you recommend generally to clients who are inexperienced with incubating eggs and they bring in their, I don't know, what, what, what's the most common species of bird that you would say you see where, where they've um, popped out a few eggs and the client comes in and says, I don't know how to incubate these eggs. What should I do? Should I let the mother sit on them? Should I let the dad sit on them? Um, should I pull them off the nest and incubate them? How do I do these that? Are, the, the, the good thing, the really good thing from our point of view is that we generally uh, – only looking at eggs ourselves once there's a serious problem. Most of the the uh, people who undertake to artificially incubate the eggs have done at least a little bit of research, and they're you know probably a little bit of a way down the track themselves. So um, we do get to look at uh, um, some of the eggs from people who might be breeding uh, the more common species cockatiels as they're trying to learn, for example. Um, but a lot of our clients are, um, looking at macaws or black cockatoos or, um, some of the exotic Amazons and, um, and they're, they're, uh, um, often referring to us once they've identified a problem with their birds that maybe the uh, blood vessels are not as extensive as they expect or um, that embryo is not showing the same vitality. Um, that's the time that we end up having a talk to the, the clients in question. Yes. So um, assuming that you have candled that egg and we have a, a nice viable little embryo there, what do you suggest if that client has pulled inexperienced client again and they've pulled off the egg from the nest um, would you suggest they put it back in that nest or they incubate it artificially I would almost invariably get those clients and we do get some of those who uh, pop in a you know a, an egg that they've uh, they're worried that the parents aren't sitting on or whatever and and you're exactly right. We strongly recommend that um, that they return those eggs to uh, the nest box and um, maybe make some changes in terms of how often they're looking at it or um, the arrangements for protection so that the the uh, parents feel more comfortable that they can stay on the eggs. Um, with, because the whole setup with incubation actually takes quite a deal of preparation, um, we're usually not doing that as a... Um, as you know, a sort of quick emergency procedure. People will need to invest in um, incubators. They need to uh, have a little bit of understanding about how they work um, before they get to that point. So generally we're asking them to return those eggs to the nest box and uh, encourage the parents to sit on them themselves. Yes, and if the opposite happens in that that client has brought some eggs into you and you candle those eggs and they're obviously infertile or the embryo is dead inside that egg and uh, what's your basic approach to that so what are you saying to the client hey these eggs aren't viable here's abc as far as trying to work out why this process isn't working in this this pair of birds that i'm i'm trying to breed from it's a really uh, um uh 
I find a really exciting opportunity to work through the husbandry of those birds at home because often um, the reasons for infertile eggs, most of our clients will immediately turn to you know the ability of the male to mate or the fertility of the male or female, but often uh, it's much more, um, well, not necessarily simple, but much more uh, husbandry-oriented things that lead to um, to infertility problems. So, obviously, nutrition. Sometimes, cycling of nutrition with some species um, may have an effect on the fertility of uh, each of the parents. Um, even uh, then, social things. So, birds kept in mixed aviaries might actually be uh, uh, courting and uh, mating, but being interrupted uh, by other species in a mixed aviary before they complete the deal, as it were. Um, so a whole bunch of husbandry issues before the actual uh, process of, um, of physical examination of the adult pair, um, that's the sort of process we go through. We see, funnily enough, with parrots, much more than other species, we see a lot of um, uh incompatible pairs, pairs that have been maybe hand, one of the parents may have been hand-reared themselves and maybe they've been poorly socialised with members of their own species and maybe they don't accept all the normal cues for reproductive behaviour from their, uh, their, their potential partners and so they literally don't know what to do. This is a really common thing for us with Eclectus parrots, we find. Um, these birds have a very complicated, wild social structure um, and when they are hand-reared and the, the uh, critical points in their growth and development, their social growth and development are missed, they'll often end up uh, not knowing what to do. Um, and uh, we have a couple of clients who have pairs of Eclectus um, who live in the house and, uh, and the males will get very excited um, at some of the stimulus they get from the female bird, but then they'll go and mate everything else in the house but the female bird. So um, those uh, uh, yes. pair compatibility and um, the social structure, uh, the social learning of the birds to get them to the point where they can mate their um, important considerations in the production of eggs. Husbandry, nutrition, um, pairing, um, social context, all of those sorts of things that we try and go through with clients in that initial first consultation when, we, when we're when seeing those new clients, isn't it, Mark? So it's, it, I think the, the, the key, key point there when you pointed it out, well, it's going back to basics with things. Don't panic that you, you have a client who's brought in some, some infertile eggs uh, uh, and what to do, how to investigate the infertility in those eggs is to go back to looking at the whole animal as a, as a whole um, and going from there. And would you, would you apply the same rules to reptiles with they, eggs? They, they, you would think just because uh, uh, birds are, you know, for, for phylogenetic purposes, they're just highly adapted reptiles with feathers. Um, you think a lot of the things we would apply to birds, we would um, apply to reptiles. And, um, and while things always happen at a much slower pace with reptiles, that's one of the reasons you like working with them, Brendan, because there are no, su no such things as, as um, reptiles out of hours emergencies. And if they do occur out of hours, they're probably not going to progress dramatically before the, uh, the uh, Warrenwood Veterinary Hospital opens the next day. Um, 
but uh, but outside of those things, there are a lot of parallels. There's a you know as we keep talking about with um, our exotic pets, there there are um, there are general principles that apply across a range of species and the basic principles of uh, medical investigation apply across those species. And once you learn the individual um, peculiarities of each new group of animals that you look at, then you can apply those general principles with um, uh, with great results. So, yes, we do look at uh, things like that. Fortunately, uh, reptiles are not as nearly easily humanised as birds, and so that seems to be far less of a problem. Yes, um, yes. We do okay. have to be very careful so, about um, moving the eggs. Uh, where bird eggs are routinely rolled by the parents and incubators for birds are designed to roll those eggs around, and, and there's those very... Uh, um, specific sort of pattern of movement that uh, maintains the health and development of the embryo. Our reptile eggs obviously get uh, laid in nests buried in uh, particular sandy locations like those olive ridley turtles you were talking about before once the beach is cleaned and, um, and they're left. And so if you move those eggs excessively, the embryo is not adapted to that movement and quite often will uh, uh, suffer gravitational trauma um, that uh, can damage the blood vessels and interfere with development, even resulting in the eggs not hatching. So um, that's one of those peculiarities that you need to watch about the, the difference between reptiles and birds. Yes, yes. Do you have an incubator at work? Yes, we do, um, and um, and it, it feeds into that whole um, uh, little bit of a... a you know, people wandering in with um, their their budgerigar or cockatiel legs. It's always a good public service if we can be seen to be setting those eggs up promptly. Um, and similarly, we do have. Uh, um, it's not an uncommon occurrence for us to, uh, with the development in our local area, to have builders pop in with a bunch of reptile eggs that they've um, they've found as they've been digging the footings out for one of the wonderful new houses in the area we live in. And so it's always good to be able to set those up, bit of a feel-good story to ensure that, um, that those eggs uh, at least have a chance uh, of pulling through. And we've had some wonderful experiences with both turtles and water dragons and bearded dragons producing clutches of of babies that we can return to um, the wild, obviously not where the house is built, but um, in the local bush, it's good to have those numbers replenished. And is that a specific brand of um, incubator you use, one of the avian or, or reptile-specific ones, or it is a human um, sort of incubator? Um, at, at, no, it's a specific avian incubator, um, and um, and we have to make adjustments to it. Obviously, you, the, um, the the thing is set up for um, bird eggs to uh, turn them and roll them, um, and uh, and we tend to use just a, um, a you know a, um, uh, one of our hospital cages for the reptile eggs, where the heated hospital cages have thermostats on them, and so we set them up in. Um, in their little vermiculite or perlite uh, bedding and um, and uh, see if we can't get them to hatch that way. 
that's I must admit I, we don't have um, the incubator we have for eggs in my clinic is called a saucepan, um, so I use it at um, some some lunch times. But otherwise, we use in the reptile enclosures uh, and just with with the specific thermometers, like you mentioned, and pop in a little uh, plastic box in there with with um, yeah some vermiculite or equivalent and the reptile eggs in there and incubating them. Having said that, I can't remember the last time I. I had a, a, a clutch of eggs that I needed to incubate in the clinic, Mark. And there's some fantastic resources online, isn't there, uh, as far as uh, methods and recipes for incubating reptile and, and, and avian eggs. And, and sure, some of them are, aren't good good uh, advice there, but there's a lot of good stuff in there, Mark. Is there any particular websites or, or no, no, I know I'm putting you on the spot I, I, here? I'm more than happy to. The, yeah. the, uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head as usual with uh, most of the, this sort of stuff there. I, I find um, these sorts of uh, uh, endeavours, the, the, um, the sorts of things that um, – I don't know whether it be people growing plants or hatching eggs or whatever. There seems to be a whole lot of um, uh, unreviewed information on the internet, and so I always encourage people to be a little bit critical of the of the advice that might be put on various forums or websites. Or um, they, just remember that um, that uh, the people putting that information out there, we don't know their experience, and oftentimes they're. Um, working from a relatively small base of um, experience and sometimes the advice they give might be stuff that's actually worked for them. I'm not accusing them of being insincere, but maybe it's not um, as uh, generally applicable and maybe there's something unique about their circumstance that makes that advice work that uh, makes it not work in other places. Um, I do particularly like the um, the uh, uh, Priam Citiculture uh, people out of Canberra, they have some excellent uh, um, information online for bird incubation, parrot incubation, some quite detailed statistics and uh, um, and uh, particular information that's useful to look for as people are going through this process. And it's of sufficient uh, scientific basis that it provides an excellent reference material for veterinarians to base their advice on when they're talking to clients about, um, you know, the sorts of parameters, the weight loss, the uh, temperatures that they should be setting their incubators at. Um, all that sort of information is there. Will I will make sure that you've got a link for that uh, that Pram uh, website um, on our um, on our podcast page so people can access it, Brendan. Excellent. And I've just found that as you were speaking there, Mark, and I will cut and paste that to our our show notes at vetgurus.com. Yeah. So I think we've only just scratched the surface of um, of, uh, of of eggs and hatching because we were going to talk a bit about coping or, or, or looking after those neonatal animals once they hatch out and the hatching process and and also talking about how we help them hatch out those eggs, uh, those those birds and those reptiles that struggle to get out of the egg. But I think we just about run out of time, Mark. And the outro guy is about to jump in here, so I think we should say goodbye and we might cover it in another topic. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.